This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Ladies and gentlemen, children of all ages, we love Hedda Barbera! Welcome to the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbera. A celebration of Bill Hanna, Joe Barbera, and the thousands of people, past and present, who have shared in their entertainment tradition. And now your host, Greg Airbar. Welcome to the fantastic world of Hanna and Barbera. I'm Greg Airbar, and I thank you for being with us. And I thank our guest for being with us, the one and only Nick Ranieri, a master animator. And I'm not exaggerating, but he's also an avid Hanna-Barbera fan. But I'll let him tell you more about himself. And I want to do that Scooby-Doo introduction. Why? Gang, it's the famous Nick Ranieri. Hey, <laughs> so, Nick, I think we should start with, for those who don't know, just a brief encapsulation of your illustrious career and your life in general. Okay, well, basically, I was a TV kid, and a lot of that happened to be animation, cartoons, mostly Warner Brothers and Hanna-Barbera. Uh, and later on, I got into Disney, and all of those interests uh, developed into a desire to be an animator, the end of my teens and went to Sheridan College, worked on some TV series in uh, Canada, and then started a 25-year career at Disney, starting with Who Framed Roger Rabbit, a Mermaid, Aladdin, worked on characters such as uh, Lumiere, Miko, Hades, uh, Cusco, got into CG with... Um, well, Mickey's uh, PhilharMagic. Yeah, that was the first one. Uh, Chicken Little, uh, Meet the Robinsons, and then went back into hand-drawn with Princess and the Frog. Worked at a company uh, that was trying to create video game. That was a couple of years. And then I've been on The Simpsons for five years, enjoying that as well. That's pretty incredible. And that, I would say, and this is just me, I think that there is a direct connection from The Simpsons to Hanna-Barbera because, and you could verify this because you know people who work on The Simpsons, that there probably wouldn't have even been a Simpsons without the Flintstones. I'd agree with that. I mean, it's a small industry. It's interesting you mentioned one of the layout guys. Is he a layout guy or background guy? It was a layout guy on Little Mermaid by the name of Rene Garcia. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, I was talking to him, and I was more impressed that he worked on the Flintstones than the fact that he was on Mermaid. <laughs> you know what else he did? He did the Granny Sweet and Precious Pup title card, which is also the album cover for Hot oh, Rod cool. Granny. It's a small world. <laughs> It is. But one of the things that in in researching my forthcoming book, it's forthcoming, is that there were parallels, sort of. Hanna-Barbera was sort of like an accelerated TV Disney in that they did projects that catapulted them the same way Walt Disney did. And they had huge successes, sometimes consequences for those successes, setbacks, things that they could have done better, things that they did extremely well and couldn't be touched. You know, you knew a Hanna-Barbera show, especially in the 60s and 70s, and they did have a certain quality to them, a certain style to them. They just knew how to make things appealing, even if there were limits. But the Flintstones, to me, is their Snow White, because... It wasn't just a matter of creating a half hour sitcom cartoon and making a seven or, you know, a 15 minute cartoon longer. There had never been a sustained half hour cartoon series, even in theatrical days. There were specials. There were the Popeye specials and things like that. But there was nothing every week. And they had to adhere to the conventions of TV and what was on TV But they also had to find a way to make animation work, not only with the movement, but also they had to have action as well as dialogue. That was a brand new thing. Yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the quotes from Chuck Jones about The Simpsons was, it's great illustrated radio, which means he didn't think much of the visuals. And this was in the 90s. But to me, (laughs) I mean, personally, I'm going to shoot myself in the foot here a little bit, but the Flintstones in its heyday, I'd say around the second, third season. Even the first season, to an extent, they're still trying to find their legs visually, but the appeal of the visuals for that show, to me, vastly outweighs The Simpsons. So in that way, it was superior. (laughs) But uh, that's just my opinion, you know. And we want to credit those people as much as possible because they there were so many good people I know you, but the great thing about it is that I uh, I sit there and you could pick out, you go, okay, that's an Ed Love scene or, or, oh, that's a Kenneth Muse show or, you know, that type of thing. You could tell the way they drew Fred and the way they drew his eyes and the way the expressions and stuff, you could tell that that's this person, that's this, that's what I mean when I talk about getting back into animation because it's so personal, getting back into hand-drawn. That's what I mean. There's a certain style you can tell of one artist scene from another, whereas CGI, it's basically you're moving the rig. And maybe you can tell someone's acting performance in certain CGI things, but it's rare. You know, it all tends to, to homogenize everything because it's the same rig that everyone's using. You being the level of animator you are. A lot of people would be surprised to hear that Hanna-Barbera's limited animation was personality animation, even at its limited state. Well, again, you know, limited animation doesn't just mean bobbing the head and all that stuff. It's you hold it when you have to, but when you move it, move it well. So there's a lot of classic stuff in the Flintstones where they will use minimal movement, but capture it with a really strong expression 
yes face something like that that will convey what is being um what the audio is and it'll match so well and those voices i mean i'm a snob when it comes to the flintstones anything that's post pretty much the show (laughs) (laughs) but i have a soft spot in my heart for it if it still contains alan reed's voice anything after alan reed I, yeah, I don't recognize it. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. You know, we're dealing with every era. We had Jerry Beck on, and we were talking about why the Tom and Jerry's that Hannah and Barbara made were were the standard. They set the standard, yeah. and why, you know, even Chuck Jones, who yeah. had made that remark before about illustrated radio referring to the HB stuff, could not. And his cartoons for Tom and Jerry were beautiful, just yeah. gorgeous. But they were Chuck Jones cartoons. They were more roadrunnery. And it just, and where it really shows is those cheaters where they'll frame new Chuck Jones stuff with old HB stuff. And you see the difference right in yeah. those cartoons. Yeah. It's funny uh, talking about the, the voices and things like that. I have a, an old cell, a Flintstone cell with Wilma and Fred on it. And back in the early 90s, there was this convention I had to go and you know, Jenna Waldo was there and Jean Vanderpile was there. So I brought the cell because I wanted to get her to sign it. She signed it and I said, that's a shame. You know, the thing that's missing from this cell, uh, Alan Reed's signature. I wish I could get it. She goes, well, you know, Henry Corden is doing a great job. I was like, yeah, I know. it's it's That's fine. That's fine. But Alan Reed was, you know, the original. I was like, but you know, Henry Corden was the singing voice of Fred. And I, Did you know that? And I was like, yeah, yes, I knew that. It's like, the, but you know, Alan Reed had that quality of a, well, you know, he tried, Henry Corden really, she kept pushing Henry Corden, Henry Corden. I finally said, okay. He was a nice lady. <laughs> yeah, she was. And I said, okay, let's think of it this way. Eventually, someone else is going to do Wilma's voice, and they may do it fine, but it's not going to be the same as yours. And she goes, I see your point now. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you have to make it personal. <laughs> one of the things he brought, and this is again a Simpsons thing, cartoon voices tended to be cartoon voices because they were mostly in a seven minute frame. UPA actually started and maybe Hallis Bachelor, maybe before that. But for the most part, UPA voices were a little more subdued, a little more adult. But the mainstream cartoon voices were cartoony. And Alan Reed insisted when he read for it that he didn't want to do it that way. He says, this is going to have to be a character. This is going to be a half hour. It's going to be somebody people get close to. It has to be as close to our voices while being in character as possible. And they finally agreed with him. So if one person has to be credited for the way Simpson voices are done and Family Guy and Bob's Burgers and all the great cartoons, it's Alan Reed. I enjoyed his biography that uh, is available. And I listened to it because his son reads some of it. And I think Joe Bavalacqua and Ben Omar. It's wonderful to listen to. I have a soft spot for Henry Corden because I love the record so much, especially the HBR series. And Henry Corden made his debut as Fred speaking on the Mary Poppins album, even while he was doing the singing. He has a great singing voice. Alan Reed can sort of carry a tune. You'll know from the Flintstone Christmas episode that if he's going to do a book song, a musical type song, you kind of needed someone. Henry Corden sounds like, Alan Reed, when he's singing, not as much when he's speaking. He was a different kind of actor. You know, illustrated radio, Jerry Beck said on a commentary, 
That's an insult, maybe, but it's also a compliment because the performances these people gave. <laughs> I'll give you an example of B. Benadaret and Mel Blanc, the Bam Bam episode, where Fred is a terrible, terrible jerk. And it runs them out of the house because, you know, you're spending too much. Get your own kid. Right. And then they go outside and wish on the star. It gives me the chills. It's beautiful. Yeah. And then when Wilma gives birth, she actually had just had a child at the time. And she told Barbara, she says, I don't really speak up much, but I'm going to be Pebble's voice. And when they did that scene together, she was thinking about that. That was a tender beautiful scene that there are live action things that don't have that kind of depth. Oh, I agree. And you know what? It sounds kind of weird to admit this, but when I was a kid, I would always tear up when I was watching the Flintstones because, well, it was, first of all, because that organ music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> dee, 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 dee. Yeah, I yeah, like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you knew. But that was the theme. Yeah. Played. The sad organ that always hit me. It's like always made me. Yeah, care. the sad meet the Flintstones. Yeah, that was Fred coming That's to why, the you know, Music is so important. That's why that stuff is so. Yeah, great. you know, it's interesting when you talk about the Flintstones. There are only three episodes that were scored. The rest were all library. There's a book about a, a composer named Earl Hagen. Oh yeah, he was great. And. In his biography, I read a story about um, he was doing the first season of That Girl, and Marlo Thomas came to him at the end of the first season, and he uh, he said that he had too much work and all that. And she said, well, my friend Sally Field said that Dominic Frontier is, is good. Why don't we get him for the second season? And Earl says, you know... I wouldn't because Dominic's really good. I, you know, he's a good guy, but what he does is he comes onto a show, records the themes, creates a library and walks and then just tracks the whole season. Whereas Earl goes in and he scores every episode and all this stuff, right? Basically they got him. That's what he did and all that stuff. But you know, I start to think that libraries are not as bad as I would think, you know, mm -hmm. especially if you create melodies that are instantly recognizable. And one of the great things about the Hoyt Curtain stuff is that they're listenable as tracks. I mean, they work in the show, but they're extremely appealing. It's yeah. not just stuff that you usually hear in sitcoms and shows where it's matched to the, the action and it serves its purpose there. But it's kind of drab and dry in certain cases and doesn't have a lot of appeal to it. And I know that's kind of weird to say because he's like, well, it's supposed to suit the purpose. This purpose is to accentuate the action on the TV show. And that's what you can, you know, listen to it in the car. But, <laughs> but to actually do both, that's a high bar. That's pretty amazing. That's why I wish more of this stuff was on CD or on whatever oh, yeah. you know audio platform is coming up or whatever, but out there you know, yeah. for commercial enjoyment because that stuff is just, it's amazing. You know what really would be nice too is if they, the way they used to do this sort of thing on Angel Records occasionally with, um, oh, he, he did a lot of like a, a Busby Berkeley album where they perfectly duplicated the songs, but in stereo with a new cast, you know, they do it with Broadway shows all the time. They'll have a new cast do a score, a studio score. Julie Andrews and the King and I with Ben Kingsley, things like that. 
it would be wonderful if the Hoyt Curtin stuff was given the Henry Mancini treatment where you took the themes and you fleshed them out. He did do that a little bit because he did an album called Hollywood Directory where yeah. the entire piece from Top Cat is on it. You know, the Nurse LaRue theme, as I like to call it. Yeah, yeah. If they can't necessarily access the tape, it would be wonderful. I never say never. You know, this stuff could happen. Although I have to say, just for purity's sake, those musicians that Hoyt used were masters. They were. And this is sort of a similar... But Lalo Schifrin redid his Mannix LP in Europe just within the last 15 years. And I listened to both, and it's not the same. He was there. He did it. But, I mean, nothing against those musicians. But I don't know. The, the original, if you can get that stuff, that's the stuff you want to hear. And no matter how much they try to match it, there's still, you can tell there's something I don't know. I I am kind of a purist in that way. That's why I'm pushing to get this stuff released. Oh yeah, I mean, ideally that would be that would be marvelous. And that's what happened when I was talking with people and got to be a part of the Johnny Quest CD for La La Land. First of all, Johnny Quest was a landmark series, a lavishly, lovingly rendered series that still can thrill today in its visuals and its incredible score is a score that's right up there with televisions and even films greatest scores here here for that i indoctrinated my kids on it long ago they destroyed the first box that i got it's all scratched up and everything <laughs> <laughs> but them. it was loved it was loved on as yes, say. yes. <laughs> there are 26 episodes there's not a lot of them yeah 26 but, and contrary to what is usually said, oh, it only ran a year, it only ran a year. Well, the thing about these series is a lot of us didn't realize there were not that many because when they went into reruns, it just seemed like there were more. (laughs) And I think part of it's because each episode was so densely packed with great stuff, but also, and you probably know this, it wasn't canceled for any other reason that the network could make more money with a cheaper show. And ABC was getting a little bit more momentum by 1965, and they could put a live action show on or another program that would not cost because all of the Hanna-Barbera stuff made for primetime was expensive. Oh, yeah. And Bill Hanna apparently even approached ABC saying, we can cut the budget. And they still said no, because for them to get the sponsors. They had to get extraordinary ratings. Same with the Jetsons. Jetsons was against Dennis the Menace and Disney. There was no way they would get the ratings to justify the cost. The quality was just really, really high on that series. I know. They were like shooting in color before uh, most network television was. Yeah. And ABC didn't even get into color until the Jetsons premiered in 62. ABC was not hurrying into color. ABC was always struggling. And that's why they did more experimenting. I think all three networks went to color by 66. I mean, I know NBC was exclusively, they wanted no shows of black and white at all. I don't know if there were some holdovers. I know that's why the Patty Duke show was canceled, because they wouldn't go to color. They didn't want the expense. 
you know, you mentioned 1965, and they were like chafing at the bit to get Batman into production. They wouldn't even wait until the 66 season just to do that because uh, they were in such dire straits. So obviously they had financial issues and popularity issues as well. <laughs> That's true. Not everyone may realize Batman was a mid-season replacement. Yeah, January 12th. Was it January 12th? Yeah, and I think Patty Duke was on after it, which didn't do Patty Duke any good because you had The Virginian on NBC, which was a very popular show, which was good counter-programming, and then you had mm -hmm. Lost in Space on CBS. So some kids were tuning out of Batman and going to Lost in Space, and mm -hmm. some people who enjoyed Westerns, because The Virginian was like the first movie-quality Western. I know, 90 minutes. Yeah. You know, that was when you couldn't just record everything. You know, it just like Saturday morning was agony because, oh, I, I want to see this show. And we didn't know that 16 episodes later, they're going to start repeating them. So you can see that other show. We had to make these tough choices. My brother and I would get the new TV guide and we would, we lived in Toronto. So we got the Buffalo stations and the Canadian stations too. And the Canadian stations would buy the, the shows and they would air them at different times. And so we would always go through this maze of puzzles. Like, okay, if we watch this show at 8.30, then we can watch this show at 9 on this uh, network. And on this channel, we can watch this one at this time. And then we tried to work it all out so we could see all the shows. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, and then I would also get out when the seasons were about to change, about two weeks before the changeover, I would get out my Panasonic red plastic recorder and I'd record like, two episodes if I could, so I could do that cold pick soundtrack thing because I was never sure if the show would last, you know, and sometimes the show would be gone and I'd have those two audio recordings. <laughs> oh yeah. I have a lot of cassette tapes of me recording a theme or something like that. And then you'd hear me go, and then make some noise or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, relatives would bring over their friends and I'd be recording some movie or something and I couldn't shush them. Yeah. And so, you know, you can hear it all going on in the background because we didn't know any of this was coming. We didn't have any conception that you could actually have a DVD or a Blu-ray of something, much less the entire series. Because yeah. as Jerry Beck has pointed out, especially with cartoons, the seven minute cartoons were not supposed to be watched one after the other. They were supposed to be seen occasionally on a big screen. Yeah. And it's the same with television animation or even tv shows you weren't supposed to as they say today binge binge watch yeah and so sometimes you'll think that oh gee it's repetitious or whatever well not when it's once a week or once a month or whenever you know every casper cartoon was identical but originally <laughs> you didn't see them all the time anyway johnny quest that was the work of more than anyone of doug wildy mm -hmm. comic book artist who developed that and great voice work. Tim Matheson, John Stevenson, who, uh, and I interviewed Roger on the show too. His father, John, was, uh, was originally Dr. Benton Quest. Mm -hmm. And then Don Messick came in, but John Stevenson was certainly never lacking for Hanna-Barbera projects. Just oh, yeah. And then you got Downey Bravo as Haji and Bandit was added for kids. Barbera loved adding dogs to shows. <laughs> And uh, Doug Wildey wasn't crazy about it. But as kids, we loved Bandit. We loved yeah. him. The great thing about Bandit was he provided Hoy Curtin with the fun music that you could hear in other cartoons. Johnny Quest music lived on for 20 years being reused. I think there's like maybe a couple of 
cues of that, but for the most part, a lot of his stuff, I mean, it's been well, almost 10 years now, <laughs> no, eight years since I worked on the CD, but um, I was surprised at how much classic cues were used for Bandit that weren't recorded for the show, but were taken from Jetsons and Flintstones. Uh, that too, Flintstones. yeah. <laughs> on that note, because we've covered an awful lot here, I would like you to come back to our show and discuss the Johnny Quest soundtrack, because that is a monumental work. What a miracle it exists. We're going to talk Johnny Quest, one of Lord Curtin's greatest accomplishments. I would love that. Well, I love that you love that. And I want to thank everybody for listening to the fantastic world of Hanna-Barbera. If you enjoyed this episode and you want to help me make more of these, please click subscribe, tell your friends, and we'll be hearing from you later on this illustrated radio show. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed the fantastic world of Hannah and Barbara with Greg Airborne. Please join us again and many thanks for listening. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.